Passionate, tribal and exhilarating. Football is the global game. At its best a unifier, a common denominator transcending language and borders. A nod to your shirt or a simple question, who do you support, could be the start of a friendship. At its worst, the colour of your kit can cause an aggression rather than a connection. While the modern game has become a money magnet and an elite profession, football is also known as the beautiful game. It has had as much an impact on high fashion as any of the subcultures and style movements we've covered in this series. And although the style around football has changed over the years, each iteration has been highly influential. After all, football is the people's game. Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Maxi. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. <laughs> I can't actually remember how I got into football. It was just, it felt happy, it felt euphoric, it felt exciting. And There's obviously something in this if everyone's very emotional. You got to see it not just as football culture, but as working class culture. Dress where you want to be, not where you are. Handsome blonde footballer meets pop star turns into a marketing dream. That world is open to fashion brands now. They're like the new supermodels in a way. Maybe we should leave it there because I've just compared footballers to supermodels. <laughs> Staples, which have clung on since day one, like the, like the, uh, you know, gazelles, special, uh, Stone Island, obviously, has clung on to that. Badging today, of course, come on. Literally, good. Everybody, everybody has to play. Um, to be honest, look, clients are asking for the Jude Well in them, man. A lot of people like a little bit of table fade and all that kind of stuff. So the Jude Well in them is a popular one that's trending at the moment. Who's got the best fade? I'm thinking of Amiens got a nice fade. Most definitely, man. Amiens got ill on lockdown. <laughs> is football style different like, in the last five years? Is it bigger than ever? Well, most definitely, man. Football is growing not only on the pitch, man, but these guys are representing on and off the pitch. You see, fashion is a big part of the branding at the moment, and their branding is important. So, yeah. Who's got the best hair in football? Philly Foden. Talk to me through the photo. Is it just that everyone can have it? Yeah, blood. If England won the Euros, then we'd have everybody walking around with a blood. So well, England didn't win the Euros, so. I was doing that in night. Yeah? Just Football may be centuries old, but today's game is a recent phenomenon, an edifice of consumerism as well as sport. Yet through the cracks in the wall, community still flourishes. A half century ago, something began happening on the terraces as football fans, in this case typically young men, began to experiment with their image and identity. This was a grassroots movement with its origins in working class culture, not always given its dues in fashion history. But fashion and football have a long interconnected relationship, which continues to this day. Working class as a term is defined in the Victorian age and ever since the beginning of that definition, there's been a culture of dress where you want to be, not where you are. Ollie Evans runs the online vintage store Too Hot Limited, selling British and European sportswear brands long associated with football culture. I always think that the birth and the genesis of British 
post-war, the start of this continuum of British dressing starts at mod, where you're taking European Mediterranean flavours and suits and bringing that over to the UK and wearing them in a distinctly British fashion of melding. And then you've got black American music coming in and it's creating this thing that's uniquely British. It's not something that America could have created or Europe on its own could have created. From that point on, you've got it developing in through suede heads, skins, and then casual. And casual represents the point where it becomes not only just a music, youth, cultural related and fashion thing, you've got the intertwining of football into the mix as well. And I think the very origins of that, you're looking sort of late 70s, 77, post-punk, is often credited to Liverpool and the Scallies there. And Liverpool being the first real club from the UK that was playing in Europe and the fans travelling to go and see the club. And with that, they started bringing back the labels that they were seeing on the continent. Hello, my name's Mark Leckie. I'm an artist. When I got into football, it's what, mid-70s? I was a punk. I mean, it had skinheads. It was like the kind of like early days of the hooligan. I mean, Man United fans used to wear these amazing um, white butcher's coats. They just graffiti the coat. It was a very uh, strong look, you know, so you're really struck by them. I mean, like visually, yeah, you couldn't help but kind of get drawn towards them, you know what I mean? It's not conflict, but it's like these two elements within my upbringing, one is to be drawn towards football and that culture, and the other is to be drawn towards art. There is a connecting bridge, there is, you know, which is like a very strong aesthetic within that kind of football culture, within that football fandom. I grew up in a town called Ellesmere Port, just over the water from Liverpool. You know, you either follow Liverpool or Everton. My family was split, they still are. My dad followed Tranmere and Everton, so I, I followed in his footsteps. I mean, the choices were either be into football or be pushed to the outskirts. I'm struck by something that you said before, which is that there is this bridge between arts and football. I think for a lot of people, football came with a whole culture. Can you tell us a bit about, for people that don't know, what that was and, and how that happened for you and when you realised the penny drops? and You got to see it as not just as football culture, but as working class culture. Mm. And working class culture being progressive mm. and being forward thinking, you know, which it still is, I would say. There's a need or a kind of a willingness to, to kind of experiment with what's new, mm. how you can kind of incorporate that yeah. and kind of make that into a kind of an aesthetic that isn't um, mainstream or middle class. Progressive, 1980s. You might have been as surprised as me to hear that Mark used the word when talking about the decade, largely because football fans had a bad rep back then one associated with violence and a slew of governmental crackdowns on football fans. This bad behaviour crossed over to the stylistically driven casual culture too, as Ollie Evans describes. At the time, it was a lot of a lot of thieving, there was a lot of people stealing the stuff, there was a lot of people going over there and realising these shops were selling these exotic items and bringing them back. 
and with the rail networks pre-cheap package flights it was all going on trains and bringing it back to the UK that way. Yet as Mark Leckie recalled, it wasn't just about violence. There was a resistant edge to this behaviour. It was very powerful. I remember I remember coming down to London, um, I mean, basically on the rob, <laughs> going to like Aquascutum or Burberry and try and, you know, filch your scarf or whatever. I always remember just the shock as, as this bunch of, of, like you say, northern working class kids gate crashed into their kind of like respected uh, emporium. Do you know what I mean? I guess there's an element of punk in that, isn't there? I mean, it's an interesting time because it's 1979, the beginning of Thatcher's reign. So there's a there's a kind of conflict in in that casual movement, I think, which was between I don't want to use the word proud. That's got wrong connotations, but, you know, identifying very strongly with a kind of working class environment. At the best of it, it was, I, I don't like the word subvert either, but it was, there was a kind of a, there was an intelligence. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's If you, if we go out together to watch a football match, I'm wearing one thing one week, you're wearing it the next week. I don't want to be wearing it the same as you. I want to get the next best thing. I want to get something else that's big and popular. I guess the first sort of brands that were coming back, obviously Adidas was a big one. And then you've got the early sportswear labels like Feeler and the Feeler BJ stuff. A lot of early tennis wear, uh, Ceruti, Ticini, LS, all of those early sportswear labels that weren't being sold in the UK. But then you've got things, British outerwear and British labels coming in like Armani. And then you've got people start adopting Deerstalker hats and um aquascutum and different labels for different teams sort of anecdotally gary aston was telling me about the blackburn fans would be going over to switzerland and bringing back iceberg jumpers which no other team had so there'd be all these blackburn fans with cartoon graphics all over their knitwear in in their end and they'd do like something out of a, a comic book because there was so much going on so there was that sort of, oh, we've got this, or they've got, and, you know, that one-upmanship grew all around the country of everyone trying to outdo each other when they came to meet up at different matches. Yet in the 80s, the culture around football was tainted by one word, hooligan. After the Heysel Stadium disaster in 1985, where Liverpool and Juventus fans were caught in a deadly crash, English clubs were banned from European games. The beautiful game was turning ugly. Mark Leckie describes a sense of decline in that era as he fell out of love with football. You know, being a scally, being a casual, so, you know, you got involved in crime, you know, it was a gang culture. So there's the glamour and Glamour in, in the true sense of the word, in that I think you're being bedazzled. But underneath that, the, the, there's, there's a darkness, you know, there's something very aggressive, rapacious. But I did go. I did love to go to the game, I love to go to the match. Following years, Everton following years sort of peaked around 85, basically when Everton were at their best. They won the league and also they were in the European Cup winners final. So we went to Rotterdam and then we came back 
for the FA Cup final where Everton got beat by Man United. And that and that was kind of the last I really went. It started to kind of like really reify into something that's just about football and violence and all, all the other elements that made it kind of more progressive are kind of dismissed. There's a side of it, a kind of ugly side of it that comes in I don't, I didn't, I didn't care for. We'll be back with more from the Identity Podcast after this break. After its decline in the 80s, football needed a reboot. And England's success at the World Cup in 1990 did just that. Football was becoming a major topic for middle-class cultural commentators, and all-seater stadia was devised to create a more family-friendly atmosphere. When the Premier League was established in 1992, with the help of Rupert Murdoch-backed Sky TV, football had finally gone mainstream. Yeah, I think guys, sports opened it up to everyone. They made it accessible, I guess. You know, it was almost thrown in your face. And they also, they made it feel really pop-like as well. They had, I think it was like Simple Minds that did the start the music for the, the, the launch of it. It was just, it felt happy. It felt euphoric. It felt exciting and all those things that life should be, I guess. Elgar Johnson is a stylist and editor of Sports and Culture Mag, Circle Zero Eight. As he describes, in this new glossy era for football, it wasn't long before celebrities, writers and even politicians were openly professing their love for the game. The 90s also saw a huge shift in how young men were represented in the media. That whole lad culture moment in the 90s was massively important, I think, for, for football and style, because that's when it started to go very mainstream. You know, you had people that were part of football that wanted to be part of football because it was like being part of a band, you know, Oasis and all those lot who just wore Man City t-shirts. And there was like magazines who were really inspirational, not inspirational, but important at the time were like loaded, you know, FHM and those magazines who were so dominant. And when growing up as like a, growing up as a kid, you know, they, they kind of ticked every single box. You know, they had loads of football in there. They had lots of silly things, but they had brilliant writers at the same time. That whole moment for me just felt like it was an explosion of fun. People were just running riot. There was a new government coming in. You know, the new prime minister was pretending to like football and play the guitar. And it was really weird. (laughs) Also at that time, I guess it's, it's kind of like the word metrosexual was inducted into the dictionary and part Mm. of it was to do with kind of David Beckham I remember once reading something really interesting about it it was like with those magazines it was like the rise of all these products that were kind of aimed at men not just products but kind of fashion trainers like the idea that you it was it didn't have to be so laddish that it could be a bit more grown up that it could be like men who cared about their hair or grooming products, yeah. these things. And that, I don't know, like David Beckham and I guess footballers kind of became these new figureheads for for that kind of cultural shift as well. A hundred percent. Talk me through the Beckham effect. Um, it's like handsome, blonde, 
good footballer meets famous pop star, marries and then turns into a marketing dream. You know, I, I, again, it's a myth that footballers will actually have style. They know, I don't think there's that many that have ever dressed that well. And then Beckham came about. You know, I, I do think that he obviously, he's his own person. I'm sure that he had his own input. There was a lot of really brilliant people around him at that time, I think, that were looking to create this this superstar. And, you know, the haircuts, you know, <laughs> that Mohican or Mohawk or whatever it was. Even I had one. I don't know yeah. what I was thinking. Um I had friends before when we used to go out in Peterborough. One of them wouldn't even go out because his hair wouldn't stick up right. While the terraces had long been a place for niche subcultural looks, the same couldn't necessarily be said for the players on the pitch. After all, George Best aside, they were usually only seen at the weekend, covered in mud and often sporting a dodgy barnet. But Sky TV's wall-to-wall coverage ushered in the era of a football superstar. There was, of course, the tabloid fodder. Beckham had his sarong, while Liverpool had the Spice Boys mocked for shampoo adverts and white Gucci FA Cup final suits. But there was a link between the pitch and the catwalk that hadn't been so overt in the casuals era when the fans had made up their own rules. Felicia Pennant is the founder of Seasonzine, which charts where fashion and football meet. Her interest in the topic was piqued while researching her thesis at university. When it came to doing my thesis, I found um, The Fashion of Football, which is a book by Paolo Hewitt and Mark Baxter. And my eyes lit up. I was like, oh, my God, there's a book that kind of chart a timeline of style on and off the pitch. So where it really kind of explodes is in the 60s. So they had the abolition of the maximum wage. Um, so it meant that, you know, footballers can earn, you know, what they're earning now. And then you had George Best, who had like a boutique in Manchester with Mike Summerby and how he would work there and they would sell clothes and people would go there and it was a hangout. But also in their way, they were influencing what people were wearing because they obviously wanted to wear what George Best was selling. And then going on from there, when it comes to like my thesis, I actually took a more kind of fashion magazine route. So my thesis was called From Beckham to Balotelli, Suits, Shoots and Metrosexuality. So I was looking at how footballers are portrayed in um, fashion magazines. So it was Beckham, it was Cristiano Ronaldo um, when he was in American Vogue, Didier Drogba in a Lomo Vogue there, and then Mario Balotelli in Lomo Vogue as well. So just looking at that portrayal and then it came up with like concepts of masculinity and the fact that um, the metrosexual and this kind of homoerotic undertone that kind of underpinned definitely a lot of what um, David Beckham did around kind of the late 90s, early noughties and footballers, you know, being cast as modern gladiators in underwear ads and, you know, whose gaze is looking at them and, and what what are these ads saying? As football players were being dressed up in suits and luxury monograms, there was clearly a newfound sense of maturity to the game. Football was putting on its Sunday best to step into a new millennium. Suddenly, football players were more than just sportsmen in uniform kits. They were personalities with a whole new audience. For me, it was it was Euro 2004. I got really hooked on this underdog story between Greece and Portugal in the final. So everyone thought that Portugal was going to win. It was Figo's, like, 
swan song and then out of nowhere Greece won and everyone was shell-shocked and I was like why is this so emotional because I never kind of had any connection with football I was just bored that summer and it was on the TV afterwards I just remember there was a very young Cristiano Ronaldo just like crying and I was like why is he crying um, and then I was like okay there's, there's obviously something in this if everyone's very emotional about this it was this humanising of players, as well as the sexualization of their athletic bodies, that propelled football and its superstars to a place it had never been to before. Gossip columns and fashion pages. Dolce & Gabbana just did like a tribute Beckham collection 20 years later or so. And it's really interesting because he was just that constant face. He wasn't afraid to take risks. Um, yeah, hair, tattoos, just this kind of imagery that had a homoerotic undertone like those arena um, shoots and you know he's like covered in baby oil and <laughs> David Beckham really did change the game ushering in the age of the football superstar brands and not just Johnson's were gathering around the game hoping for a piece of the pie Labels that had formerly distanced themselves from football's negative associations began to edge in closer as footballers became celebrated cover stars. There was a real moment where he did make a lot of men think you don't have to look like you're going to go and beat someone up all the time. You don't have to be the toughest guy on the block. You know, it was that sort of thing. And you can have a, there's a sensitivity about men and masculinity that's okay. And also there was a lot of people that saw this as an opportunity to become a brand. And they are brands now. They're very powerful. Their uh, social media numbers are ridiculous. They have bigger numbers than anyone. They're like the new supermodels in a way. But where did this leave the casuals? Those fans we met at the start of the episode whose stylistic choices define their loyalty to a team. For Ollie Evans, they never really disappeared, with fandom continuing to be a key part of both football and fashion today. I grew up going to a lot of raves and a lot of clubs and working in men's designer shops at the same time. My first sort of experience with uniform dressing of casual culture was from seeing the Zulu Birmingham City fans rushing the door, uh, metalheads nights, just like a sea of Burberry caps just running in and rushing the door. I was like, what the fuck is that? Just seeing it worn in that way that signified this is who we are, we're Birmingham and we're coming in was just like a trigger for me. It just made me think, oh, right, that's really interesting. I, I, that kind of piqued my interest in the appropriation of clothing. And did the Beckham era and football's kind of mainstream appeal affect or dilute the culture? Yeah, Beckham's an interesting one. Uh, I've always been into clothes. I was thought I was so underground and discovering things that no one else had and then all of a sudden you've got David Beckham wearing Maharishi and things like that and you're like oh fuck's sake why's Beckham wearing it now everyone's going to know about it and I hated David Beckham in, in, in his peak, peak day because he kept finding all these brands and bringing them to a wider audience but I think the, the, the style and the labels will fluctuate and go in and out of style but the ideology of dressing for football has never gone away I don't I think so when I started buying and selling old Stone Island stuff and TP stuff. People were like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's out of fashion. Oh, that's all a bit dodgy. Oh, that's got a bad reputation. And a lot of 
people going to football had moved away from those brands or were wearing it without the badges on it. And even Stone Island were making button loops inside of the jacket so you didn't have to wear the, the badge inside because it got a bad rep. But there was lots of other brands. The style might have changed, but the ideology didn't. So if you look at that period, you've got a lot more kind of pared down stuff happening. You've got Oi Polloi in Manchester defining the look of people wearing folk and APC and these sort of more pared down brands. Things come and go, but the style and the the culture won't go away. Casual culture, with its love of European sportswear, laid down the blueprint for fashion's inevitable embrace of athletic gear into high fashion. From the terraces to the dance floors, football pitches to fashion shows. You've got this point at the end of the 80s where rave culture happens and you've got this intermingling of the football fans with greater, wider culture. It broke down the boundaries of people's accepting of each other, not just football fans, but everybody, colours, creeds, everything. And from that point onwards, you've got this intermingling of ideas in this space of feeding in and out of each other. And you've got, by grime, dubstep, you've got, it's getting more into sportswear, but you've still got the designer labels there. So you've got images of grime in the early 2000s wearing Prada hats, Stone Island badges, all of that. And I don't think that would have come in unless those football fans had not been in those raves in the early days. It's like that intermingling of ideas. And now you've got to a point where it's so well established that that root point has worked its way through. And now you've got all culture influencing everything. So the internet's blowing everything wide open. Yet for a long time, there have been holes in this story. Felicia Pennant feels there have been significant gaps in the narrative since she first fell in love with the game. My only problem always was that there was no women. And I'm a woman. And then I looked around and there were no people of colour and I'm a black woman. So then that was always my thing that, why is that? And then, yeah, fast forward to around 2016 and that's when I was like, like that's when the first issue of season scene came out. From 1921 until the early 70s, women were banned from playing football on official FA grounds. This placed women's football and its popularity years behind its male counterpart. But Felicia's seen exciting changes in the last decade. I think it's a question that's, I think I've answered myself in the last kind of six, over six years that I've been doing season zine and just also seeing the women's game explode. Like, that's when I really learned about that history because it was hidden before then. I didn't know that there was a 50-year ban even looking at, um, you know, the Lionesses just won the Euros, which is amazing. But there were no, there was no kind of, there were no black women of that team or women that have two black parents in that team, women who looked like me in that team. And that's for various reasons. So I'd say um, answering that question, I mean, it's not answered. But I would say that in the last kind of, yeah, over six years, as more of this history is being uncovered, more people are interested in it, you, um, more women are visible. I mean, that was a big thing of when I start season. Like, season's mission is to counter the fact that modern football culture is male, pale, and sometimes stale. But, you know, the male part and the pale part is still the case. But um, you can see tangible change, like, not just on the pitch, you can see more people of colour, it's slow, but off the pitch, you know, when you look at broadcasters, when you look at 
journalist trying to break through. But I mean, it's always that thing of like a lot of us are independent and kind of doing things of our own steam first. And now six, almost seven years later, um, it does feel like, you know, people are trying to create these pathways. But I also would say, you know, the reignition of the Black Lives Matter movements definitely um, helped shift that a little bit quicker. England's win at the most recent Euros in 2022 clearly changed the perceptions about women in football, at least in Britain. Elgar Johnson explains why. Absolutely. I think it's been bubbling under and it just needed that. It needed some focus. That's what it needed. It needed some of the biggest sports brands to focus in on these talented athletes who train just like the men's football teams train. You know, they work, they play as hard as the football te- as the men's teams and now they're <laughs> you know, actually with their record now, they're actually better because they, they won something. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's actually come full circle completely. <laughs> so far, women's fashion hasn't really been a part of football culture as we know it. But things are changing with designers like Martine Rose and Grace Wells Bonner exploring the long history of football design within their work. Again, when you think of the history of football and fashion and football, it is very trained on the men, men's players and the men's game. And obviously, we think of the casuals. I'm always like, there must have been female casuals, but you, it's, I haven't found any yet. <laughs> I'm looking for them. Um, and then when you think about it now, what I get really excited about is, you know, Martine Rose and like what she's been doing with subcultural style and you know all the football references that she has in her collections um that's what I get excited about and also the fact that she's a woman and also that she is also passionate about like making women more visible in this space because I think you know what Martin Rose has done what Grace Wells Bonner's done with Adidas as well like I have that the jersey that (laughs) when I walk into an office there's about couple of us that have that jersey and I love it um and then if you don't wear the jersey what's exciting at the moment is there's some really brilliant designers who are like I mentioned Martin Rose but someone like Sophie Hurd who's kind of putting their own spin and re- deconstructing and oh Hattie Crothener who's made really brilliant football corsets there are people that are doing really interesting things uh, with using the jersey as like the foundation and then it's just whether it's for your team and whether you want to um, incorporate that in. Although style on the terraces has changed a lot throughout the years, it took the brands that early football fans coveted a long time to catch on. But football fans are fans for life, so this won't be going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, what always amazes me about the casual thing is there's there's like this extraordinary kind of intelligence within it. I mean, there was there was like top boys or whatever. There were some cool kids, and they'd be the ones who were kind of leading it. But everyone kind of understood it. or understood the kind of uh, the engagement. You know what I mean? And I always found that very exciting. You know. Football is forever, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's what I'm saying. But their influence won't stop. But there'll be something else that that fashion will attach itself to because that's how it moves and I'm, I'm glad it moves like that. 
sports stars are influencers. So it's interesting to see footballers become these icons and then you see, you know, from Green Soccer Journal to season to obviously what Alga's doing with um, Circle Zero Eight. Um, but I also think it's a, they're much more healthier and empowering influences. It's about, you know, what you can do for your body and it's something that feels very relatable and accessible sometimes more than, you know, a singer or an actress. For me, it was the appropriation. It's taking stuff that isn't meant for the purpose and creating a new purpose, a new context with it, doing something that you're not meant to do because you can. So what's to stop you? There isn't anything to stop you. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed with research and additional writing by Amy Duffy. Production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths. And art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieber, and Identity was produced by Podmasters of Vice Media.